And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm pleased to welcome Andrew Loney back to the program today for the second of a two-part interview. Andrew is the founder of the Andrew Loney Literary Agency, one of the premier literary agencies in Great Britain. Andrew has written several nonfiction books, including The Mountbatten's The Lives and Loves of Dickie and Edwina Mountbatten, and Stalin's Englishman Guy Burgess' The Cold War and The Cambridge Spy Ring. Today we will conclude discussing his most recent release, Traitor King, The Scandalous Exile of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, which is published in America by Pegasus Books. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us again on Book Talk. It was a a great conversation about the early days of abdication in our last episode. So let's look at some of the unsavory characters they associated with after leaving Britain. First up is Charles Badeau. Yes, the Duke did have this propensity to to get drawn into circles of people he shouldn't really be associating with. And the first was Charles Bedeau, who was a Franco-American businessman who'd made his money from time and motion studies, very unpopular with the labor unions. He was a great believer in world peace and in basically making some sort of deal with the Germans so that Britain, America and the Germans could face the real enemy, which was the Soviet Union and communism. And the Duke met him around the time of the abdication and was drawn into a circle. Bedo offered him his castle in France to get married in. But in return, he expected the Duke to make this triumphant tour of Germany to see uh, social conditions. But of course, this was a propaganda coup for the Nazis. Bedo needed to basically get in with the Nazis because of his German in- his business interests there. And the, the Duke was duped. He, he, he ended up visiting Nazi leaders, inspecting SS troops, even going to a concentration camp, having tea with Hitler. He hadn't reported this to uh, his brother, And this was, of course, hugely embarrassing at a time when knowledge of concentration camps was becoming known and people were beginning to stand up to Hitler. So Bedo uh, continued to intrigue with the Duke. He was in Paris when the Duke was there at the beginning of 1940. In fact, it was to Bedo that the Duke leaked sensitive information about the French war plans and defences, and Bedo passed this information back to the Germans. So he had been blacklisted. He was, the Duke was warned about Bedo not to be involved with him, and he ignored all those warnings. Bedo was eventually brought back to the States under suspicion of being a Nazi agent and either committed suicide or was murdered. It's never quite clear what exactly happened, but he died while he was um, waiting to go on trial. What was the motivation for the royal family and the government in Britain to treat him continued with kid gloves, meaning David Windsor, instead of being more forceful in their controlling him and his activities outside of the country? Well, it's very difficult to know what the royal family could have done. It's the same problem they have with Harry and Meghan. They have to maintain often a dignified silence. They don't want to enrage him and, and, and so that he says embarrassing things or makes revealing statements about the royal family's private lives. So they had to treat him with kid gloves. You know, they were frightened what he might do. I don't quite know what they could have done, the poor royal family. They were damned if they did something and damned if they didn't. So the best they could do was to remain as friendly as they could with him, even though they felt betrayed, and to just ensure that he didn't do anything that would cause other members of the family embarrassment. 
They brought in, for example, trained PR people to help him deal with the press so he didn't say embarrassing things. They worked with the American government to keep him away from the isolationists. They kept him under surveillance to see who he was associating with. They did warn him about some of his associations and people to avoid. So they did their best to try and control him without him feeling that he was being controlled. What other interactions did he have with Germans prior to September of 1939? Well, I think one of the closest of a series of interactions were with his German cousins, particularly Prince Philip of Hesse and the Duke of Saxe-Coburg, who were Nazi emissaries who were used to target him. They used the Nazis, the family connections, to target members of the royal family and the aristocracy. So we don't know the extent of these contacts because that material has never gone public. We think a lot of that material was basically picked up from German castles at the end of the war and either destroyed or put into safes. So we do know there was extensive communication with German cousins, probably stuff that is rather embarrassing, but that stuff has all just disappeared into the archives. It's amazing that even the circumstances of World War I didn't sour those relations between Saxe Coburg and their family that renamed themselves Windsor. No, I think, you know, the blood was, was, was stronger than water and the family connections, you know, remain very, very strong. Some quite close links with the Kaiser. So, you know, I suppose we have to remember these were family relationships as well as political and state relationships. And These were people they'd grown up with, whose views they might actually privately share, who felt that perhaps through family connections they could avert war. So it was quite a nuanced picture. And of course, that was exploited by the Nazi leadership. How much do you think their distaste of communism had to do with the concept of it itself or the grudge they had against the assassination of the Tsar, their cousin? I think there was a whole mixture of of motives. There were personal motives, as you say, because of the assassination of the Tsar. Personal motives with just the Duke trying to get up one up on his brother, feeling jealous of him, feeling that he needed to, as I say, big himself up in the eyes of Wallace. But I think there was certainly genuine political beliefs that war shouldn't be allowed to happen again, that the real threat to the Anglo-Saxon nations was was Russia and communism. There were so many elements at play that it gets very difficult to work out if any of them were particularly dominant. It was a sort of package of things. With Wallace being so close to von Ribbentrop, do you think they had any knowledge of the Molotov-Von Ribbentrop Pact of non-aggression? No, I don't think they did. I think that was a surprise to them when that emerged. So I think that the the connections they had were pretty much with other members of the family and pretty much through Prince Philip of Hesse and the Duke of Saxe-Coburg. I think Ribbentrop was very careful to distance himself and not to compromise them by being too close, which is why it's been very hard to establish how close that relationship was, because I think so much of that evidence has been destroyed. So we just get hints of it from people's diaries and letters and comments and interviews that were done at the time. So it's it's all very tantalizing. But, you know, people were clearly hiding the, 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 the associations that were going on. What evidence is there that it was the possibility of restoration that was one of his motivations for his sympathies? Well, I think in the summer of 1940, it looked pretty dicey. The, the Germans looked like invading Britain and succeeding 
or certainly Britain suing for peace to save the empire. Actually, the rapid breakthrough on the 10th of May and the subjugation of France and the Low Countries very, very quickly. And looking at the, the files, it's clear that Churchill was, was very open to negotiations. There were overtures coming from the Vatican, uh, Switzerland, Sweden and elsewhere. Despite the, the brave words, the British political establishment were open to some sort of negotiation. They were at least allowing some of the negotiations to run and entertaining them because they were either playing for time or to see what the deal was. That was supported by a number of members of the cabinet, people like Lord Halifax and his deputy, Ralph Butler. So I think that the Duke was not alone in entertaining these approaches. I think he was much more secretive about them, and I think he went further than others in exploring them. But I think he generally believed that if the Germans successfully invaded Britain, he would have been the new king. He was prepared to sit it out, first of all, in Switzerland, and then when he was sent to the Bahamas to come back from the Bahamas, he actually sent messages and code to the Germans saying that. So there's plenty of evidence showing that he was not just playing with them, but he was seriously in negotiation with them. Another one of these shady businessmen he is involved with is a Swedish industrialist by the name of Axel Wiener Gren. Yes, otherwise known as Goering's pal, the founder of Electrolux, another of these figures that all the intelligence reports had warned the Duke not to be involved with. He mysteriously arrives in the Bahamas shortly after the Duke in 1940, He's building deep harbours there for no obvious reason. The suspicion is this is going to be a refueling station for U-boats. He has the attraction of a large yacht previously owned by Howard Hughes called Southern Cross and is happy to let the Duke and the Duchess use that to tour the Bahamas to make trips to the States. So though the Duke is warned not to associate with him because of the suspicions against him, the Duke continues to ignore that advice. And it's just further evidence of his lack of judgment I think his, frankly, very blatant approach that, that he was quite happy to engage with these people, whatever the, however it looked, because they were going to be the victors. Now, the government back home was concerned that he might be abducted while in Spain or Portugal. So how was the decision to remove him to the Bahamas made? Well, the decision to, to, to move him to the Bahamas was not just for his own protection, but also get him out of Europe, where he was open to these blandishments, and to give him some sort of public role. And it was done basically by carrot and stick. You were going to threaten you with the court-martial unless you follow orders. And they realised the game was up and that Elba, as they called it, was their best option at this time. But they didn't actually fulfil the whole of the engagement there. They actually what was called the second abdication, resigned early. Wallace was much more involved in humanitarian activities there than her husband, who basically played golf and got drunk and went to strip clubs. So he didn't really take any of the jobs he was given seriously. And it just confirmed people's views, particularly when he came off the war looking for work, that this man was a waste of space and not worth giving any role to whatsoever. Do you think Wallace's cooking of bacon and eggs was a genuine effort or was it always kind of a public-facing PR attempt? I think it was PR. I, uh, but I mean, I think, you know, she did generally cook the bacon and eggs every day on the base. And she did make an effort in a way he didn't. I think she generally did care about the medical needs, for example, of young black children, who many of whom were suffering syphilis. Monies from trust that he was responsible for were used to improve the lot of 
the black population. So I think she did find much more sense of validation and purpose of life in the posting than he did. But, you know, she bitched about it the whole time and she didn't carry on that work after the war. She went back to her life of partying and socialising. So what is their tenure in the Bahamas viewed like by the, the residents and citizens of Bahamas now? Well, I think it's a, it's a mixed picture. I mean, there were some people when they left felt that they'd done within the, the prescribed what they could do, had done a pretty good job. The Bahamas then was very much run by a group of businessmen called the Bay Street Boys who didn't want any political reform, wanted to keep the blacks subjugated. But that suited the Duke. He didn't really want to get into a fight with them. He was pretty racist in his views and felt that was fine, the way that the blacks were treated. So I think he took the line of least resistance. He wasn't going to be the great reformer and moderniser that he claimed to be in earlier on. He wanted a quiet life and he wanted to, to try and make money himself, to develop tourism there. He was involved in the syndicate with Alex Venegren to take money out to Mexico to develop casinos. So he saw it, I think, as a business opportunity as much as a diplomatic posting. It seems like international currency exchanges and such were not above board and one of his main sources of income in this time. Yes. I mean, he never really understood the black market, or rather he understood it too well. And he was always playing it, often used a front man, such as his secretary, to do these dealings. I think he felt the rules didn't apply to him and he could do what he wanted. But he was certainly trying to take money out of the Bahamas and invest them in this Nazi-sponsored bank, the Banco Continental, in Mexico during the war. So he was certainly not being the dutiful public servant that he should have been. You alluded to earlier about when he was touring America, they tried to keep him away from the isolationists like Charles Lindbergh and, of course, homegrown fascism of the German-American Bund and Father Coughlin and just the general anti-Semitism that was in America prior to Pearl Harbor. So it seems like there were a lot of people he would have had to stay clear of. Yes, there was this cat and mouse game going on the whole time to keep him away from America, to keep him away from even, for example, the Vichy ambassador there, from isolationists, from Axel Wenegren. Over the course of his life, the Duke was under surveillance by MI5 for the British, the FBI for the Americans, the French Secret Service, Portuguese and the Spanish Secret Service. Everyone was watching him for various reasons. And I mean, fantastic for the historian, because of course we get these almost verbatim reports of telephone conversations, physical descriptions. But it must have actually made him pretty paranoid to realise that everyone was watching whatever he did. Though, as governor, his letters weren't opened under postal censorship. His wife's were, and they lobbied very hard to try and get her the concession that he had. So they were you know, very concerned that people were monitoring the whole time and what they were saying and doing. But it didn't seem to stop him being pretty indiscreet a large part of the time. What was the American public's reaction to these early tours of the Windsors? The American public, I think, had mixed feelings. Some of them criticised them for their extravagance, but I think a lot of them, you know, bought into the great love story. They found them cosmopolitan, well-dressed, glamorous, perhaps hard done by, victim of rather cruel British establishment I and mean, gained shades of Harry and Meghan. And I think they milked that and exploited that. But, you know, there were reports coming back of their freeloading, of their extravagance, at a time, particularly during the war, when people were having to live much more frugally and resented people flaunting their wealth in the way that they did. Her dress bill was enormous for the time. 
Yeah, and I think it's more shocking when you realise that often she was borrowing dresses and not returning them. But she was all the main designers designed for her. She had a huge wardrobe and spent, even with her concessions, spent huge sums of money on jewels and clothing. And they both did. They were both very vain. She hardly ate. I mean, I, I think she was anorexic. And he himself didn't eat. They had two meals a day. They were determined to keep their body shape and weight exactly the same when they were in their 60s. It had been in their 20s. You had mentioned his trying to push peace with Germany. How did that manifest itself prior to Pearl Harbor? Well, he made a big broadcast to France and Germany on the eve of war. He was still in touch with Nazi agents throughout the course of the war. He was communicating with people like the Vichy ambassador in America. So at a time when he should have cut off all contact with anyone from a foreign power, he was dealing with them. For example, he arranged for the Germans to collect belongings he had left in Paris, and indeed a swimsuit of Wallace's from La Croix, their home in the south of France. So he was very happy to engage with the enemy, even though they were the enemy, if it suited his purposes. In your research, could you notice any difference in his personality when the prospect of restoration finally had gone by the wayside? I think the big break point for him was the end of the Second World War, the fact he wasn't going to be given a job, that there was no role for him, the Germans had lost. So in some ways, he'd failed in his exercise to maintain peace. He realized that he was just going to be this constant I suppose, wanderer with no fixed job and no obvious fixed abode. So, yeah, I think it must be 46, 45, 46, the penny dropped, that he was on his own, there was no role for him, and it was going to be a pretty dull life. In this post-war life, you mentioned his name before, the Woolworth heir Jimmy Donahue, and that relationship between the three of them seemed very, very unusual. Yes, it was unusual. Jimmy Donahue was much younger than the couple. He was the heir to the Woolworths fortune. He basically bankrolled them. So he paid for their cruises. He paid for their trips. He picked up the tabs and restaurants. And he was a sort of court jester. He was there to amuse them. He stimulated Wallace, who was bored with her husband. And that eventually led to a full-blown affair. He was outrageous when the Duke was dull. He was generous when the Duke was pretty miserly. So it was a complete contrast. And I think Wallace felt that he made her feel young and come alive. And it was said that Wallace had given up a king for a queen, because most of of, of Jimmy Donahue's interests were focused on men rather than the women. But it was a breath of fresh air. She sort of came alive in Jimmy Donahue's presence. And a lot of people said it was very good for her that she had this brief fling. And it seemed that flings were very common for the both of them throughout their relationship. Yes, I think the surveillance in 1935 revealed that he was having an affair then with an Austrian princess, and she was having an affair with a car salesman called Guy Trundle. And unfortunately, there's only one of those surveillance files that survived in the archives, the others were destroyed. But I'm sure there were other affairs. I mean, she was having an affair with William Bullitt, the American ambassador, between 1937 and 41. He had various affairs during their marriage as well. And of course, and it's even hinted at that he may have been the lover of Jimmy Donahue. So they were, in effect, swingers. There was a man called Scotty Bowers who pimped for them when they went to Hollywood. So they had a pretty active sex life, contrary to what people have written about in the past. 
and I think they were just looking for escape and for, I suppose, stimulus because their lives were so boring. Probably unknown to them, there was a sort of Damocles dangling over their heads, and that came through a huge tranche of documents that were discovered at the end of World War II in abandoned German positions. Yes, the captured German documents, particularly what's been called the Windsor file. The German diplomatic records were supposed to have been destroyed. They were not. The historian responsible felt they should be saved and used in the war crime trials. They were buried in the forest outside Marburg, discovered there by the Americans. And this had chapter and verse of what people signed up to. So they're a very important source. The aim was that they should be published after the war. Churchill and Eisenhower and others fought a pretty successful battle to ensure they were not released until 1957 and their significance was played down. But the heroes of this story are really the American historians who were determined that these documents should see the light of day and nothing should be covered up. There were stories of files being destroyed. There are empty page references. There are clearly some people who've been redacted. But to a large extent, we do have uh, what happened. So what has the reaction been like in Britain, especially with your status as a fellow with the Historical Society, about picking at the scab of these wounds from so long ago? Well, I think opinion has shifted. We started off, normally I have extensive review coverage, and none of the broadsheets reviewed the book. I discovered rumours were circulating that there was nothing new in the book, even though there are thousand footnotes, much of it comes from completely new archives and documents. So there was a bit of an exercise to sort of downplay its significance. The conventional wisdom had always been that he was trapped rather than he willingly collaborated with the Germans. But it's quite interesting that many of the people who supported that view until the book came out actually changed their tack and appeared on a television program that I was involved in, saying quite, you know, supporting my book. We started off well with a big review in the Times Literary Supplement saying that I'd made the case and that he was a Nazi. I provided the evidence. And actually all the reviews, when they have appeared, have been pretty positive. So I think we've recalibrated the view of the Duke of Windsor. I hope more information will emerge to support my thesis. But I I don't think anyone can doubt that he was not an innocent in all this, that he knew exactly what he was doing. And though his motives may have been misguided, he was certainly someone who was a traitor to this country and should have been executed for treachery. Was the television program the documentary Edward VIII, Britain's Traitor King? It's called uh, Traitor King. I think there are two, one made by Yeti Productions, which has just been uh, shown on Channel 4 and is on YouTube. But there is another one, unfortunately, with the same title made several years ago. The other book is quite interesting because it interviewed a number of people who are now dead, including one of the agents who tried to entice him during his time in Portugal in 1940. Our book focuses much more on the documents and the evidence for his treachery and rather less on interviews because we, like the book, wanted to keep the the, the thing pretty substantial and to show this wasn't speculation, but there was hard evidence from, you know, for example, Churchill's own papers, George VI private papers, and these captured German documents to support my, my view. In addition to your writing, you're also one of the world's leading literary agents. Does Andrew Loney, the agent, have to have stern talks with Andrew Loney, the author, on occasion? Well, that's a good question. I, uh, I've been writing books the last, uh, the first book came out in the 1980s. 
but I stopped writing between 1995 and 2015 while I built the agency up. And it's only really since my family grown up and I've been able to carve a bit of time with the agency, but the, from the agency, but the agency still takes up 95% of my time and the writing is done late at night and at weekends. COVID was quite good in terms of research because a lot of stuff was digitalized and I didn't have to go to archives and make notes. So that speeded up the process. But on the other hand, a lot of archives were closed, like the Royal Archives and the archives, for example, in the States, the National Archives, archives that held private papers, particularly uh, previous biographers. So I was able to update a little bit more for the American edition and the British paperback, which have just come out. But it is always a difficult balance between the two. But my main income comes from the agency. And so and my main responsibility is towards my authors. So that has to be the priority. The great thing is the writing shapes the, the agenting, the gives me contacts, for example, with publicists and festivals and people commissioning articles. So it's been very good for the agency. It's allowed me to pass on contacts to my own authors. And of course, by having read you know hundreds of proposals and books over the years, I've sort of picked up by osmosis some of the tricks of how to make books you know, accessible and entertaining. I will say I was listening to the audiobook as I was reading an ebook provided by your publisher in America, and there were sections that didn't exist in the audiobook, that there were usually quotations, longer quotations from some aspect were missing from the audiobook that I had seen on the ebook version. Oh, that's interesting. Well, that's news to me, and that shouldn't happen. I'm always aware that, for example, footnotes get cut when you do audio. And one of the great, I think, strengths of the book are the footnotes, which are at the bottom of the page, so you can look at them while you're reading the passage. I don't know how we get around this problem, because I know a lot of people like to listen to audio. All I can hope is that maybe there's some package where you can get the audio and read the book and the ebook at the same time. I didn't know if maybe there was some type of copyright restriction on those you were quoting. or uh, No, alas not. I think it's just clearly something that's been done. I read the British audio version. I don't know if I was reading, if they used that version in the States. I believe uh, it was you. It was me, right. Mm. And uh, in some ways that has strengths and weaknesses. It's always interesting to hear an author do it. But clearly an author isn't trained to do, for example, different voices in the way that an actor will do it. So I'm slightly torn about whether it's a good idea for authors to read their own books. I thought you did a lovely job. Oh, well, thank you. Is there another topic that has caught your interest or are you still in promotion mode for this? No, I'm hard at work on a book on Prince Andrew and Fergie on the Duke and Duchess of York. It's the third of a trilogy of books on unusual royal marriages. So the first was the Mountbatten's, this very public partnership where they were Viceroy and Viceroyne of India, but took separate lovers, had an open marriage. The Traitor Kings is, is the next of these unusual royal marriages, the, the love affair which turned out to be a bit of a nightmare. And then the Duke and Duchess of York are interesting because they are probably the happiest divorced couple ever. They divorced pretty early in their marriage, and yet they've continued to live together, to support each other publicly, to be each other's best friends, to co-parent together very effectively, and yet at the same time to have had lovers. So again, an interesting dynamic in trying to understand what makes that relationship tick, why they work in that way is the focus of the new book. But I'll also, of course, be looking at Andrew's relationship with Epstein, and indeed how Epstein paid off Fergie's bills, Andrew's role as a trade envoy, and whether he abused that position for private gain, her use of charitable organizations for her own business career, 
and looking at their upbringings. Uh, both of them come from, in effect, broken homes. Her mother left her when she was 12 and she was broken up, by, brought up by her father. Andrew was, in effect, the child of a woman who was busy with her royal duties and never really developed a, a, a very close bond with his parents. He was sent away to school quite young and I think had a very strong sense of self-entitlement and of being spoiled. And I think that, I suppose, upbringing has affected the way he's behaved to some of the crises in his adult life. And is now serving his own exile, albeit internal right now. Exactly. It's very interesting to see how the royal family dealt with it. I mean, again, uh, I mean, though the Harry-Meghan parallels with the Duke of Windsor are closer, we do see parallels with the Duke of Windsor, his love of golf, his abdication, really, of his responsibilities, and his rather venal attitudes to making money for himself. Well, Andrew, I want to thank you so much for spending some of your limited free time with us. It's been very much a pleasure to read Trader King. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be on the program. Andrew Loney is the author of Traitor King, The Scandalous Exile of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, which is published by Pegasus Books. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.